Good morning. It's um, so good to be here with all of you. Uh, Sandy pulled a fast one on us, but at least we get grits and eggs this morning and the shoes shine. Only place in Memphis. <laughs> uh, I'm truly thankful to be able to be here with you. Um, if you've not been here in a while, we've been going through a very rich series in the life of David. Uh, and as we get to the close of David's life, we're in chapter 24 of 2 Samuel. Uh, we see David do a lot of wonderful things, but we also see him do a lot of things that we would not expect him do. Nor would David expect it of himself. Uh, some of y'all might remember uh, uh, Pastor Rocky Anthony. He used to be a pastor here at 2nd. And if you knew Rocky, that man knew how to tell funny stories. You know, the rest of us pastors were rather corny. And so whenever I need a good pastor joke, I always go back to Rocky and um, you know, Rocky used to tell this story. I'm not sure if it's true or not, so you might have to decide for yourself. Uh, he, he told a story about an uh, email that he once got um, entitled Anniversary. It was about a man named Larry. And Larry one day got in big trouble. He forgot his wife's anniversary, or his anniversary rather. And he was in big time trouble. Uh, Larry's wife went to him and said, Listen, this is the second time this has happened uh, and this will not happen again. Tomorrow morning, there better be a gift in the driveway that goes from zero to 206 seconds, sir, or there will be hell to pay. All right. So sure enough, Larry wakes up the next morning really early, and he goes to the store, and he buys his wife a gift, and he brings it home, and uh, she wakes up a few hours later, and just really excited, she puts on her robe, and she goes to the window, and she looks out the window, and sure enough, she sees this little box that's wrapped in her driveway. Now, clearly, this was not Alexis. Uh, she was a little confused, but she was excited nonetheless. So she went outside, she got that present, she brought it back in, and she was just ripping through the box, and she opened the box, and what did she find? A bathroom scale. <laughs> Zero to 206 seconds. <laughs> uh, he later says, there was hail to pay, and I will be getting out of the hospital soon. Uh, just a little story that Rocky used to illustrate that things in this life usually don't go the way that we think they will. And as we look to the life of David, especially chapter 24, things happen that we would not have thought would have happened to David or the people of Israel. If you were here last week, uh, Sandy started out talking about the warfare that we see throughout all the Old Testament. There's, there's military warfare and there's also spiritual warfare. And Sandy's point was is that David is great at both of those things. For example, he was a great military commander. He was the master-in-chief of the greatest nation of the world. After he took the mantle from Saul and became king of Israel, he united the twelve tribes, and he basically brought them to be a superpower that all the other nations feared. He was a phenomenal military leader. And not only that, he was a great soldier. Remember some of his great individual battles, especially with Goliath. He was, he was a, a military giant, David. But not only that, he was also a spiritual giant. David was described as being a man after God's own heart. In one chapter in the Psalter, David said what he desired more than everything else was to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now that's a significant statement from David, because remember, David is king of the greatest nation in the land. The greatest military, he had all of the riches that he could possibly want at his fingertips, yet in spite of all of that, David said what I desire more than anything else it's to dwell in the house of the Lord. David was a spiritual giant, but as we look to the life of David, we also see that he was a sinful giant. He did many things we wouldn't expect him to do. 
And as we get to the end of his life, chapter 24, which I believe is the darkest season of his life, we see his greatest sin, especially in terms of the consequences of it. But the thing we've got to understand about 2 Samuel chapter 24, as with the rest of the Bible, it's not primarily about David or us. It's about God. Now, if you've done your homework and you've gone and read chapter 24, you'll notice that it looks a little out of place. We've already looked at David's last words, so here's 24 on the end. And it just doesn't make sense that it would be right here. But I think it's purposeful that God placed chapter 24 where it is because He wants to communicate to us a phenomenal theological truth. In the midst of the darkest season of David's life, we learn something about the gospel and what true sacrifice is. Right here in the Old Testament, 2 Samuel chapter 24, we learn that God's mercy is indeed greater than our greatest sin. So if you have your Bibles, open up to 2 Samuel chapter 24. I'm going to start at verse 1 and carry us to the end. This is the Word of God. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and He incited David against them, saying, Go number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army, who was with him, Go through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and number the people, that I might know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as there are, while the eyes of my lord the king still see it. But why does my lord the king delight in such a thing? But the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army, So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. They crossed the Jordan and began from Aror, from the city that is in the middle of the valley, toward Gad and on to Jazir. Then they came to Gilead and Kadesh in the land of the Hittites. Then they came to Dan, and from Dan they went around to Sidon and came to the fortress of Tyre and all the cities of the Hivites and the Canaanites. And they went out to Negeb of Judah at Beersheba. So when they had gone throughout all the land, they came to Jerusalem, and at the end of nine months and twenty days, and Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king. In Israel there were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000. But David's heart struck him after he numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what have I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, For I have done very foolishly. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you. Choose one of them that I might do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you and your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or there shall be three days of pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to God, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time. And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, It is not enough, now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. 
Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what, they have, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word as the Lord commanded. And when Aruna looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Aruna went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground and said, Aruna, why has my lord the king come to his servant? David said, to buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Aruna said to David, let my lord the king take and offer what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offerings and the threshing sledges and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Aruna gives you to the king. And Aruna said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. But the king said to Aruna, No, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that costs me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor for the oxen and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land and the plague was averted. From Israel. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Uh, now, our passage today is just verses 18 through 25, but I think it's important for us to go back to verses 1 through 17 and understand the context of David's sin. What did he do that was sinful? What was the heart of his sin? And what were the consequences of his sin? So we're able to understand the power and the significance of our passage. Now the first thing I want us to see is in verses 1 through 9 in relation to David's sin and it's this. David took his eyes off of God and placed them on himself. David took his eyes off of God and placed them on himself. Now, I got to tell you I'm glad that Sandy uh, took on this passage last week because if you've read it, and if you heard me just read it, this is a very difficult passage to understand. There's some heavy theological truths here. So I'm very glad that Sandy dealt with it in its entirety last week. But again, I think it's important for us to go back and understand so we can get the full significance of our passage. Now for us to understand really what's going on here in this whole episode, I think it would do us well to pay attention to the four primary characters that are introduced here. Because as we understand all of those characters' role in this whole thing, we're able to understand the fuller picture. So the first character we're introduced to is God. And we see him in verse 1. Now in this passage, in verse 1, we're told that God was angry with Israel and He incited David to make a sinful census. Now my friends, that is what you call a difficult truth to understand. That's a hard passage. What in the world are we supposed to take from that? I mean, how do we make heads and tails of that? Are we supposed to understand that God caused David to sin? Well, we know... That doesn't line up theologically, so how are we supposed to understand this? Well, I think a great tool that we must have in our own theological library is the Westminster Confession of Faith. Every time I run into a difficult theological truth or or passage in Scripture, I run to that to understand uh, what's going on so I can make heads and tails. So this is what the Westminster Confession of Faith says in chapter 3, and hopefully it will help us to understand what's going on here. Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 3, paragraph 1, reads... God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of His own will 
freely and unchangeably ordained whatsoever comes to pass. Yet so, as thereby neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. Now, <laughs> let's take the Christianese out of that. What does that mean? It tells us that God is sovereign over absolutely everything. He has decreed everything. Everything is in His control, God. But still, God did not create sin. He is not the author of sin, nor does God tempt us to sin. Now, God does test us. We see that in the book of James. But He does not tempt us to sin. God's sovereign over everything, but He's not the author of sin. That's what that's telling us, and that helps us to kind of figure out what's going on here. But still, we need more information. Now, the next character we see is Satan. Now, as we look to the role of Satan, we're able to understand the fuller picture here. Satan is not explicitly stated in this passage, but he is explicitly mentioned in the corollary passage, 1 Chronicles chapter 21, verse 1. 1 Chronicles chapter 21, verse 1. What does the chronicler tell us there? Well, the chronicler tells us that it was Satan who incited David to sin. It was Satan that was behind it. So there you go. Well, now that's another difficult question. Are the writers of Samuel and 1 Chronicles, are they at odds with each other? Do they disagree with one another? No. They're both right. So here's the concept. God is in control of evil. He's not the source of evil, but He is in control of evil. So what David used to destroy, his intentions to destroy David and Israel, God used against itself for the purposes of His glory and for the good of His people. The point is that God is in control and in spite of evil... God will bring about His purposes for His glory and for the good of His people. So that's, the, that's what's happened on a cosmic scale. But let's get down in the mud. The third character we see is Israel. And again, we're introduced to them in verse 1. We're told that God's anger was against Israel. So our question is, what in the world did Israel do to deserve God's wrath? I mean, later in this chapter, we see that 70,000 people are dead. What in the world did Israel do to deserve such a thing? Well, we're not really sure because it's not explicitly stated. Most scholars seem to think, though, it has something to do with Absalom's rebellion and how Israel responded to that back in chapter 21. But we're still not very sure. Uh, but something that we can do to get a you know, pretty firm grasp on what happened is simply to read the Old Testament. I mean, have we spent time in Judges lately? I mean, holy cow. Israel did something every other day, rebelling against God, which tells us Israel is deserving of God's wrath. So we should never ask the question, where does God get off judging sinful people like that as if when we're in a position to judge God? But no, our response should always be in agreement with God that we are sinful and that we are deserving of His wrath and therefore we turn to Him for mercy. But that's Israel. They're deserving of God's wrath. Now the other character is David. And we see how he fits in this story in verses 2 through 9. Now many of us have the question, I had the question, what did David do that was so sinful? I mean, all he did was take a census, after all. I mean, in the Old Testament, whenever a census was taken, it was always in the context of some sort of military movement. And it makes sense for David to take a census. I mean, he was the high commander. He was the chief. He was the king. Wasn't it his responsibility and duty to know how many soldiers he had? I mean, that makes sense. It happens elsewhere in Scripture in the Old Testament where God commands the leaders of Israel to take a census. So what did David do here that was so sinful? Well, I'll tell you. God did not command it. David commanded it. 
So the sentence itself is not sinful. Rather, it's a manifestation of the sin that David was struggling with. And here's our subpoint: David's sin was primarily a sin of pride and meism. He displaced God and he placed himself at the center. Some of us remember Dr. Carl Ellis, uh, a brilliant scholar. He was here at Christian Life Conference this past uh, January, here uh, with us at Second. And as pastors, we had some time with him, and he talked to us a lot about the sin of meism. And I took down some notes, and this is, this is what he said. He said, The sin of meism is exactly what Adam and Eve did in the garden when they exalted their own will and opinion over the Word of God as the basis to judge good and evil. So they used their own opinion, not the Word of God, but their own opinion as the basis to judge what was good and evil. And when they did that, they became their own authority. They displaced God and placed themselves at the center. And at the heart of all of that is the sin of pride. And that's what David was struggling with. When David made that census apart from God's command, he was basically and essentially telling the people of Israel and the nations of the world, look at me, look what I have built. Look at my nation. Look at the soldiers that I have under my command. Look at my accomplishments and my wealth. Look what I have done, David. Don't look at God, but look at me. And even Joab, who is no saint, by the way, knew something was fishy there. He knew that David was sinning. David was struggling with the sin of pride and meism. He placed his own hope and his own accomplishments and himself and not in God. And we think to ourselves, man, how foolish can David be, right? But the truth is, every single one of us as sinful creatures struggle with pride and meism. i got to tell you, in seminary... When I was there, every young seminarian has the struggle of wanting to be the next Tim Keller. And i got to tell you, it's not because we want to have fruitful ministries, it's because we want to be famous pastors. That's a real-life struggle that seminarians have. We want the focus to be on us. Big-time churches and pastors, they struggle with, with butts in the seats and money in the budget. And we like to compare with other churches. We do that all the time. We struggle with that. Businessmen struggle with, hey, look at the the kingdom that I have built. Look at the mergers I have made. Look at the deals that I have sealed. Look at the kingdom I have built. Look at my home. Look at my vacation home. We struggle with things like that. A family that has taken my wife and I under the wing in this church, they say one of the greatest struggles that East Memphis families uh, struggle with is trying to outdo their neighbor. Look at the school my kids are in. Look at the clothes they wear. Look at the soccer leagues they're in. It could be something as simple as, look how fast I lost the baby weight after I gave birth. We all struggle with meism, and that's exactly what David is struggling with. Now, pride is a very serious thing because it's the foundational sin of all other sins. And in Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16 through 19, we get a list of things that God hates. Six things. And the first thing that's listed is haughty eyes. Now, what is that? What does that mean? That's the arrogant way that we perceive ourselves over and against our neighbor. And more than anything else, that's what God hates. And that is what David was struggling with. So here's the deal. Satan is responsible for this whole thing because he tempted David. David is responsible for this because he harbored that temptation in his own heart and he actually acted on it. Israel is responsible for this because they rebelled against God and they were deserving of God's wrath. God is not responsible for this, but He did allow it. 
And just like we see in Romans 8 and other stories in Scripture, like the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, God always uses the evil intentions of men and Satan against themselves to accomplish His own purposes for His glory and for the good of His people. Just like the Babylonian exile where God uses an evil nation to discipline His children. That's what's happening here. So that's the context. Now the next thing I want us to see are the effects of our sin. We see this in verses 10-17. through The effects of our sin are never experienced in a vacuum. The effects of our sin are never experienced in a vacuum. Now there's two things I want us to take note of. First and foremost, there is the trauma of conviction. And if you've been convicted by your sin, which I know you have if you're in Christ, you've experienced that trauma of conviction. In verse 10, we're told that David's heart struck him after he realized the consequences and what he has done. It struck him. His heart struck him. We're not talking about the prick of a conscience here. This is, this is a severe thing. His heart actually struck him. Now, this is actually a huge measure of God's grace. We remember back in 1 Samuel, after Saul sinned against God, what did God do? He removed his empowering spirit from Saul's kingship. But that's not what happens here. God's spirit stays with David and convicts him of his treachery. Those two passages mentioned above, John 16 and Hebrews 12, we're told there that the Spirit of God guides and directs the people of God, and God disciplines us, and we know that He disciplines us because we are His kids and He loves us, just like you would discipline your own children because you love Him. That's what God does here. But the author of Hebrews tells us, don't take this lightly, this conviction. And why are we not to take this lightly? Because conviction hurts. And I think the reason that it hurts is because it cuts us down to size. When the Spirit convicts us, it cuts us down to size. And that always is a tough thing. Remember last summer, my wife and I went to the beach with my family. It was a, it was a wonderful trip. We went to Gulf Shores. And one day, you know, I just got it in my head that I was the next Bill Dance. And um, so, you know, I went to those little five and dime shops that are right there on the beach. And you get those, you know, there's basically those plastic rod and reels. And so I bought that and I was just you know, boasting in my own um, egotism and all that type of stuff. I'm going to catch all the fish in the world. Let's go do this. I'm going to show my wife uh, how big of a man that I am and, you know, stick it to the old man and catch all the fish possible. So I'm out on the beach and for hours, I'm kidding, I'm not kidding, for hours I'm trying to cast the line into the ocean. Not once do I do it. When I finally do it, it gets all tangled up and, you know, I'm sure I'm said some curse words. I don't know. It was a horrible, horrible situation and I was very embarrassed and all that type of stuff and then here comes my wife, and the first uh, cast that she throws in the ocean, the first cast, she catches a fish. Now, that would have been okay until my family started singing that country song, She's More of a Man Than You'll Ever Be. You know? And that, that cut me down the size, and it was difficult to hear. But with sin, when we get convicted, it cuts us down to size. And sometimes, what theologians call is severe mercy. And that's when God takes us down to ground zero in order for us to repent. Sandy said many times that God will all but kill us in order to save us. I don't know if you've read that book by Rosaria Butterfield. It's called Confessions of an Unlikely Convert. It's a wonderful book. Please go get it and read it. But it's about this former lesbian woman who was a women's lib professor at Syracuse. Her entire identity and her career was wrapped around her homosexuality. 
She was a leader of the LGBT community. Her thesis and her doctoral work was based around uh, uh, her homosexuality. Everything was wrapped up in this thing. Well, after years of the Spirit prodding her, she finally comes to Christ. And she said when she came to Christ, that was the best day and the worst day of her life. Because she understood if Jesus Christ is real, that means I need to repent of everything. And for her, that meant everything in her life. And so when she repented, she said it was like I was looking in a mirror and I was a vampire because I was not there anymore. She gave up everything. Conviction is a mercy, but it's also very traumatic. And David experienced that. Now the second trauma is the trauma of corporate consequences. And we see this in verses 11-16. through 16. The point here is, is that our own sin always has consequences and they're usually felt by other people. Case in point. The prophet Gad comes to David and gives him three consequences, three choices, and they're terrible choices. It's like a gun, a knife, or a mallet to the head. Which one do you want? I mean, famine in the land, war where you're going to be constantly pursued by people, or pestilence. And all of them were beyond David. And he knew in that moment the traumatic reality that our sin has corporate consequences. So there's a twofold principle I want us to take away here. As Christians, we are justified in Christ. Yes. We're justified in Christ. That is the great news of the Gospel, that eternal consequences are removed from us in the blood of Jesus. But there's always temporal consequences. Say, for example, you're a bank robber with Babyface Nelson back in the 40s. And you're robbing banks right and left. You get arrested, but you get convicted of your sin. You repent, and you actually come to Christ. Those eternal consequences are removed in the blood of Jesus. But that doesn't mean your butt's going to be behind bars. You're still going to jail. As Christians, we are justified by Christ, yes, but there's always temporal consequences for our sins. Secondly, our sin is always selfish, yes. But the consequences are never selfish. Take, for example, adultery. If we commit adultery, that is a sinful and selfish act. But the consequences are never selfish because it's going to destroy your wife. Now, we get that, but that seems like an example that's far off. I'm sure we're not struggling with that, but let's think about porn. The statistics prove right, more than half of this room struggles with porn. Porn is a selfish activity, yes, but the consequences are never selfish. Because if we look at that junk, it's going to distort our mind and how we perceive beauty, love, and sex, and that will affect our wives. So as Christians, we are justified in Christ, yes, but there's always temporal consequences. And our sin is always selfish, yes, but the consequences of sin are never selfish. And David experiences both of those things in this story. He experiences the trauma of conviction, and he experiences the traumatic reality that there are consequences for his sin. So that's the context here. David's in the darkest moment of his life. He realizes he has sinned before God, 70,000 people dead. It's more than he can handle. But what does David do next? He throws himself into the mercy lap of God. And that's exactly what he should have done. And friends, if you have sinned, throw yourself onto the mercy lap of God because the greatest lie that Satan will ever tell us is right after we sin where he will tell us, hey listen, go in that corner over there and clean yourself up because God will not accept you now. And if we listen to that lie, we're going to stay in that corner because we're always going to be dirty. But do what David does after your sin. Throw yourself immediately onto the mercy lap of God. 
A huge takeaway for us as sinful men. David is a great sinner, but again, he is also a man after God's own heart. And in the rest of this chapter, we get a beautiful theology of dark times. In the life of David, next we see true repentance and true sacrifice. First and foremost, true repentance. Now again, in the midst of the darkest episode of David's life, David throws himself into the lap of God because, get this, he knows that God's mercy is greater than his greatest sin. And as we see him throw himself onto the mercy lap of God, we get a great taste and a great view of what true repentance looks like. Now I've got to confess to you, I am a Chicago Cubs fan. I am also an Ole Miss Rebels fan. Do not have pity on me. I did that to myself, okay? I, I, I chose both of those teams. I am a masochist, okay? I, I enjoyed the suffering that comes from following those two teams. But a couple days ago, I was watching a Chicago Cubs game, and the announcer uh, spent some time describing all the different rule changes that are in baseball. Uh, all these rule changes that they have made this year is to make the game shorter because they've realized no one enjoys a four-hour baseball game. So they're trying to make it shorter, but the announcer says no amount of rule changes made will ever amount to a hill of beans if parents don't start taking their kids to baseball games. We're going to lose an entire generation if parents don't teach their kids to love the game that they love. And if they don't, this game will eventually die out. And I thought that was pretty intriguing because my time spent in youth ministry, college ministry, and young adult ministry i got to tell you, as men and as fathers and leaders of churches, we have to be able to disciple a repentant lifestyle in our young people or it is going to die out. There's a huge difference between identifying our sin and burning the ships that go back to them. And for whatever reason, my generation, the generation's younger, and it might be all of us, it just might be a sinful man thing, we have an extremely hard time doing that. There's more to just identifying sin. We have to burn the ships that go back to it. That's what repentance is. And furthermore, we have to learn how to be able to receive the repentance of others. If your friend sins against you, then repents in the name of Christ. We never say, no, I do not accept that because I demand justice. In the gospel, God receives justice. We receive grace. So if someone sins against us, that doesn't mean there aren't temporal consequences. Sure, there'll be temporal consequences. But we never treat each other as we deserve because we are not treated as we deserve in Christ. We must disciple each other and the younger generation of what a repentive lifestyle looks like. And we get a clear picture of that in the life of David. Now, the first thing I want us to see is the definition of repentance. A change of mind that results in a change of action. A change of mind that results in a change of action. From Scripture in those verses listed, we see that repentance simply isn't this cognitive assent or acknowledgement that we're sinners, but rather it's a change of thought that leads to a change of action. So what's that change of thought? We stop believing that we're generally good people and that we're better than the person sitting next to us. We start agreeing with God that we are sinful before Him and we are deserving of His wrath. So what's the change of action then? We turn away from what our sins is because it displeases God and we turn back towards God and rest in His arms of grace. So there's a change of thought that leads to a change of action and there are two turns there. We turn away from sin and turn back towards God. Now it is important for us to understand though that repentance is not something we do to achieve salvation. Okay, repentance is a gift. It's it's an act of faith. Or to put it another way, repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. I really love what this pastor said. He said that no one can repent unless God grants repentance. All of salvation, including repentance and faith, is a result of God drawing us to Himself in the first place. 
of opening our eyes and changing our hearts. So it's by faith that we repent. When we agree with God that we are sinners before Him, we turn away from sin because it grieves God and we turn back towards God to fall in the arms of His grace. And that's exactly what David does in verse 14 where he says, I have sinned and I want to fall into the hands of the Lord. David knew that he had sinned before a just and holy God, so he turned away from his sin and turned back towards God. That's the definition. Now here's the heart of repentance. Repentance is not a response to circumstances, but rather it's a response to who God is and what He has done. It's not a response to circumstances, but it's a response to who God is and to what He has done. You know, sometimes when we repent, it's, it's only because you know, we got caught. <laughs> and uh, you know, that's okay, but if that's the only time that we are repenting, our heart probably is not in it, and it's, and it's a superficial repentance. It's kind of like when we were kids, and our mom walks in on us, catching us doing something that we're supposed to. And we throw our arms up in the air and go, Mom, I don't know how that rated R movie got on the television screen. I'm serious. I, I think it was my older brother that did it, but I agree with you. This is egregious. This is absolutely ridiculous. I, I know it's terrible. I promise you, I'll never do it again. Trust me. We weren't sorry because we were truly repentive. We were repentive because we wanted to escape the wrath of Mama. We've been there before. That's a superficial repentance. But a biblical repentance is always in response to who God is and to what He has done. It's when we see God for who He is, a just and holy God who's almighty and all-powerful. Yet in His mercy, He saved us while we were still sinners. And in response to who He is, we turn away from our sin and we run to Him in His arms of grace. Which is exactly what David did in verse 10, when he said his heart struck him, and he agreed with God that he was a sinner in need of mercy. And it's important we understand that David did that before he was caught. <laughs> he did that before he was approached by God. So that's the heart of repentance. But lastly, for this section, what I really want us to take note of are four signs of repentance that were demonstrated in the life of David. And hopefully, this will help us in our discipleship. The first sign of true repentance we see in the life of David is confession. Now again, just like we just saw, confession is critical to true repentance. David did this in verse 14 and 17a when again he agreed with God, turned away from his sin, and ran to God to rest in his mercy. Now that's extremely different from what Saul did in 1 Samuel chapter 15. We remember that passage when God commanded Saul to destroy the Amicalites, to not take any plunder but just to annihilate them. But what did, they, or what did Saul do? Saul took plunder. <laughs> and he saved the life of the king of the Amicalites. Then Samuel comes to him and goes, man, what is this that you have done? What did Saul do? He passed the buck. He said, hey, I know this is bad stuff. The people of Israel did this. I had nothing to do with this. Now, I don't know who Saul was kidding. He was the king after all, and the people are following the king's orders. That guy passed the buck. And it was because of that that God removed His Spirit from him. But that's not what David did. David confessed his sin. And it's important to know that David did all that before, again, he was caught. Living a repentive lifestyle must include our agreement with God that we are sinners before Him. Because just as the Apostle John says in 1 John, if we don't, the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confession is a true sign of repentance. Now the second sign we see in, in David's uh, lifestyle is contrition. We see that in 17b. 
A true sign of repentance is remorse of our sin. It grieves us. And that's what happens to David in 17b. David is so sickened over his sin, the consequences of it, he pleads with God to take his hand from the people of Israel and place it on himself. He is so grieved over his sin, he wants to receive the consequences. And again, he did that before he was confronted by Gad. His contrite heart was not created because he was caught. His contrite heart was created because he knew that he had sinned before a just and holy God, and it grieved him. Contrition means that we hate what God hates. I know that sounds weird. God doesn't hate anything. Well, yes, He does. What does God hate? God hates sin. And in our repentance, we don't simply confess our sin. We grieve over it because we know it grieves God. Now, the third sign is humility. We see this in verses 18 through 22. God told David to go to the threshing floor of Aruna to purchase it to build an altar. Now, we have to understand how significant that is. Aruna, the Jebusite, is a Gentile that's living illegally in the land of Israel. And not only that, his tent, his house, is right at the foot of the city of God, Jerusalem. And he was there because David gave him permission. Now, again, David is the king of Israel. He had every right not to go to Aruna, but to demand Aruna come to him. And he had every right not to purchase that threshing floor, but demand it. It would have been humiliating for David to go to this Gentile to ask if he could buy this threshing floor. But that's exactly what David did. Why? Because David was humbled before God. He previously struggled with pride, but now he's been humbled by God. Humility is critical to our confession because we realize we do not have a leg to stand on. All of us have sinned before God. None of us are greater or better than the other. And David understood that. God humbled him. He had a posture of humility. Now the last evidence of true repentance we see is sacrifice. And we see that in verses 23-25. through Aruna did, up, did end up offering this threshing floor to David. And he did so because he knew that he was a Gentile. And he knew David was the king. And he just was paying his respects and homage to King David. He said, David, I want you to have this. And I want you to have the oxen and the bulls that you're going to make a sacrifice with. I give it to you. May God be with you and the people of Israel. But David did not receive that gift. He paid for it. Because David knows that true worship and true repentance will always cost us something. Now the truth is, in our culture, all of us struggle uh, with being motivated by convenience. All of us are like that. Every single one of us. I mean, you know, for example, it's easy for us to tithe, but it starts to we start to have second thoughts when that tithing starts to hurt our pocketbooks. and It's easy for us to follow Christ, but not when He carries us to dangerous places or when it starts to cost us something. We start to think twice. I mean, in our sinful nature, we all struggle with convenience, but that's not what David was struggling with here. David put everything before God. Everything that he previously placed his hope in, his accomplishments, his pride, and his wealth, he puts before Aruna. Because David knows that true worship and true repentance will always cost us something because he understands what God really wants is not our money. He wants us. He wants our entire life. God wants our heart, every single bit of it. The way that we think, the way that we act, and the way that we live, God wants us. Just as Paul says in Romans 12, verses 1-3, through offer up your entire life as a living sacrifice in response to who God is and what He has done for you. And that's exactly what David does here. But that's not the most significant thing that David does. The most significant thing that David does is after he buys that threshing floor and raises an altar, he makes a blood sacrifice. 
And then and only then is the wrath of God removed. And I believe what God wants us to pay attention here is to verse 25. Because in this very dark scene, we see this crucial verse. And in it, the author is telling us something very important about the Gospel and true sacrifice. So very quickly, true sacrifice. David and Israel have sinned against God. God in His righteous anger is dispensing His wrath on the people of Israel. 70,000 people dead. But out of nowhere, God stops right before the city of Jerusalem. And it's an amazing thing. He didn't remove His wrath. He simply stayed His wrath. And it was only after a blood sacrifice was made that His wrath was actually removed. A concept that we're familiar with from Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11, which tells us that blood must be had for atonement. But what is the author telling us here? What is God telling us here? I believe He's telling us that all of us are sinful and are deserving of God's wrath. And an atonement must be had, but it must be had from outside ourselves because we're too sinful to make it. For example, when David said to God, put the pestilence on me, let me be the sacrifice, God did not do that. Why? Because David was a sinful man. Innocent blood needed to be shed. So here we are at the threshing floor of Aruna. A little plot of land on the foothills of the city of Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. A very significant geographical location that's used in two other stories. God and His sovereignty use this little piece of land in three different stories to communicate to us something important about the Gospel. First and foremost, the threshing floor points us backwards to the story of Abraham and Isaac. When Abraham went up to sacrifice Isaac, it was right here near the threshing floor. I'm going to read this passage for you. Genesis chapter 22, 9-13. When they came to the place which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his thorns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Why is it important that the threshing floor points us back to the story of Abraham and Isaac? Because it was there that God demonstrates that He requires atonement. But in His grace, He provides it Himself. He requires atonement, but in His grace, He provides it. Now secondly, the threshing floor points us forward to another crucial story. The hill of Calvary. Right around the corner from this little plot of land is where our sinless Savior died on the cross. And it's right there where God demonstrates fully that He does require atonement. But in His grace, He pays it Himself. Hebrews 9, 22-26 Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Now speaking of Christ's sacrifice, He says, Nor was it to offer Himself repeatedly as high priest enter the holy places every year with blood not their own, For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he appeared once and for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself 
once and forever. Why does God want us to pay attention to the threshing floor? Because He wants to tell us that it's David's truer son, the true shepherd king. That's the true sacrifice. Not David. Not rams. Not bulls. But the spotless lamb. And just as sinful David said, God, give me their punishment, the sinless Savior says, I will take their punishment. And just like that plague was averted at the threshing floor of the sacrifice of David, the true plague of death was stopped at the cross of the true sacrifice of our risen King Jesus. This threshing floor is where they would eventually build the temple. But it's at the cross that we by faith are included in the true temple of Christ's body. Now the funny thing is, it's only after we trust that and believe in that and rest in that that we're actually able to live a repentive life. Because we know the cost has been paid. And we can run freely to the merciful arms of God. God wants us to know that salvation comes not by our riches, not by our accomplishments, not by presidents, not by earthly kings, not by denominations, not by political parties, not even by our religious works, but it comes through the actual and true sacrifice of His one and only Son. His one and only Son. We are told in Christ there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Why? Because He paid the true cost. And the only question that's put before us is, have been washed by that true sacrifice? <laughs> Brothers, as we close out in this very dark season of David's life, May we look to the life of David and learn what true repentance is, but may we also look to the life of Jesus and place our hope in true mercy, true love, and true sacrifice. Because this is the Gospel. God's mercy is always greater than our greatest sin. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the truth of the Gospel. We thank You that we are accepted by You not because of our own efforts or things that we have obtained or accomplished or have done for You in this world, but rather we've been accepted by You based off the blood of Christ. And Lord, we pray that this foundational truth of our faith in the Gospel would always well up within our hearts. And in response to who You are, we would follow You faithfully. We love You, O God. And it's in the blessed name of Christ our Savior. Amen.